Thank you so much. Good morning. During the Advent season, what I'd like to do with you is to explore carefully and thoroughly the reason why we celebrate Christmas. We're calling this series, this four-part series in December, A Purposeful Christmas, and we're going to be looking very carefully at some phrasing that we find in the Scriptures surrounding Christ's movement into Bethlehem. You and I are going to notice in these four texts throughout December a phrase such as, I came to, or I was sent to, or he appeared to. In any of those situations, we find that the word to stands out. It's very purposeful. There's a mission. And furthermore, it doesn't say, I was born to. Because of the fact that he says, I was sent to, or I came to, what you and I are being taught then is that we are dealing with the preexistent one. He lived before Bethlehem. The second member of the Trinity lived not only in Old Testament times, but prior to Old Testament times. So we're going to explore this now and try to understand better what is the purpose, what is the reason behind the celebration of Christmas so that we have a better explanation, not only for our own hearts, but for our family members and for the community that God has placed us in. So with that in mind, look for this phrasing during the course of these four weeks, and in particular now, In today's study, in Matthew chapter 5, where we're going to focus our attention on verse 17 down through verse 20. It's part of what is known as the Sermon on the Mount. And now Jesus Christ, after having gone through a series of what has been historically described as his Beatitudes, makes a very powerful statement with regard to his mission. You pick it up in verse 17 of Matthew 5 and look, at, look very carefully for the purpose statement found here. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear... Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to try to recreate the scene in which Jesus is speaking, in which Jesus Christ is teaching, and try to understand very clearly his mission statement, the reason, the purpose here, for his entrance into Bethlehem, and how it relates to 2012 living today. So let's start by looking to our Lord. 
in prayer. Now, Father, I want to thank you for each one here. We want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to be able to explore your word and be able to see how it relates to modern day life. We want to be faithful. We want to be accurate. And we want to meet needs. And there are a lot of needs in this church. There are struggles. There are challenges. There's fears and there's worries. There are those who come out on Sunday mornings that are spiritually curious, but at this point have not allowed their spiritual curiosity to be transported into a relationship with Jesus Christ, rooted in authentic faith. So, Father, no matter what our backgrounds are and no matter what needs we've been facing or we know we're about to confront this coming week, we need, Father, for your word to speak to us at our point of need. Again, Father, warm our hearts. Realign our wills. And engage our minds, Father, to think biblically. For again, we've come here now to see Jesus and, and Him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Few people understand the whole issue of being a prisoner of war better than John McCain. Senator McCain was being interviewed and was asked to describe the challenges of somebody who's incarcerated in time of war. He said, in war, captors often try to mess with the minds of captives. One method is to give them a shovel, point to a huge pile of dirt, and then tell them to move it to another point. And once that is done, they tell them to move it back again. And the idea is to remove their sense of purpose. This is the 10th anniversary of Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. What I want to do is to explore with you the idea of the purpose-driven Christ. Because you and I are living in a culture that increasingly is questioning the purpose, the meaning, the traditions of the Christmas season. And what we long for are believers to be able to explain thoroughly the rationale, the reason behind this celebration that unfolds over the course of these four weeks. So what we want to do now is to remind ourselves this is not simply shifting dirt from one setting to another. Rather, there is something incredibly significantly purposeful here in what we are about to explore 
that has direct bearing upon the way in which people are living their lives or not living their lives today. So what we're going to do is to draw three essentials that are found in this powerful, profound teaching of Jesus Christ and let them saturate our hearts to such a degree that, Lord willing, it's going to make a difference in the way in which we not only live but minister before and to others. The first of these three essentials we're simply going to call the reason Christ came, found in verse 17. But in order to fully explore this and understand this, we're going to have to use a negative and a positive approach to think this through together. Start by asking yourself the question, what didn't Christ come to do? Now, the answer to that is found in the first portion of verse 17. Do not think, he said, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Let's pause there. Stop there. Begin to think there. Notice that he begins with the phrasing, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Why are they prone to think this way? The answer is because there will be those in that society that are beginning to think that Jesus Christ is introducing some kind of novelty. A new religion, an alternative to Judaism, something other than what is taught through the years that the Jews have embraced. How are they going to then respond to a Jesus? Now what Jesus is going to do here is to immediately address the elephant in the room. I know what they're thinking. They're assuming that this is some kind of novelty. What I'm about to develop for you is that all this is is the application of the 39 books of the Older Testament. Not something new, but something newly applied in a deeper, richer way. So don't think what they're saying. Now the challenge in that society was that they were simply adding what were known as oral traditions to biblical truths. To to the point then, when people could not distinguish a tradition (coughs) from a truth, So they assumed then that what the scribes were teaching about tradition was the very same thing as the truths that were being taught in the Older Testament. And the average person wasn't able to distinguish between the two. Now likewise, in our culture today in 2012, the big problem is that people aren't able to distinguish what's real Christianity, what is true, and what is simply religious traditions. And what we've got to be able to do is to address what they're thinking and say, do not think this way. That's what Jesus does here. When he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was exactly what the religious leaders were assuming at that time. What Jesus is doing is not eliminating the law. What Jesus is doing is, is internalizing the law. The Pharisees were brilliant 
at religiously externalizing everything. It was nothing more than ceremonial and ritual. And maybe you've grown up in that kind of tradition. Where you stood up, you sat down. You stood up and you sat down. And at the end of it all, you turn and you look at your loved ones and say, what was that all about? Notice here that he is moving from ritual to reality, from external to internal, and he's making it tremendously personal for you and for me. Now what he does then is that he begins to snip away not at the scriptural truths, but at the oral traditions. David Hansen tells about the time he and a friend visited the site of the battlefield of Gettysburg. Climbing a nearby observation tower, he was expecting to get a tremendous view of the land. And then he and his friends were astounded to see only trees which surrounded the tower. See, when the tower had been built years earlier, the builders apparently forgot that the trees were going to continue to grow and eventually to block the view. Now, what has happened here is that Jesus Christ has spotted what's blocking the view. The ritualism, the traditionalism, the externalism of it all has kept people from seeing the authenticity of the Scriptures that point in the direction of Jesus Christ. What this means then is that we've got to be able to determine what is it that people are thinking in today's society. Cut down the shrubbery. Cut down the trees that are keeping people from a clear view of who Christ is and what Christ set out to do and direct them towards the one who set forth on this mission to save us from our sins. Are you doing that in your extended circles? So look very carefully now and realize that what Christ has done is he started with a negative. Let me tell you, he's saying, what I did not come to do. I didn't come here to abolish the law of the prophets. The 39 books remain intact in that Older Testament. The moral law remains intact. So now he flips it. Brilliant teacher that he is. And he says, okay, I gave you the negative. I told you why I didn't come. Now let me tell you why I have come. Question. What did he come to do according to the 17th verse? Look what he says here and relate it to Bethlehem. I have not come to abolish them, speaking of the law of the prophets, but to fulfill them. Look at the phrasing. Notice the word come. Again, it doesn't say born. It doesn't say I was born to. I have come to. Elsewhere, I was sent to. In other words, now, what you and I realize, there is something critically different, distinctly different regarding Jesus. I was born. For us who have been able to discern a sense of purpose for living, 
we were born to. But what stands out about Jesus Christ is he is able to say, and only he is able to say, I came to. He lived before he was born. He lived before Bethlehem. He lived before the Old Testament. This was an eternal second member of the Trinity speaking about the mission that had been established in eternity past. Now you look at the Christmas story. And you say, now there is something significant that goes far beyond the romanticized, sentimentalized story of the baby in the manger. There's a mission here. There's a purpose here. And now you're going to get people thinking and asking the serious questions of, why? And why did he start as a baby? And so you introduce dialogue and get them to think, well, that allowed people over the course of time to observe the patterns, the behavior, the conversations, the statements of Jesus Christ. So that they likewise would be confronted with the fact that there is someone distinctive here in our midst. Now what you and I need to do is to continuously bring forth the idea there is someone distinctive here in our midst. He came to, and because he was born, he came, he entered to such a degree with purpose that people now watch as this life begins to develop and they see the uniqueness of who Christ is and begin to explore what then is the purpose that this is all about? Have you pondered that? Or have you settled for a simple, romanticized, sentimentalized Bethlehem story of a baby in a manger? Which is important, but there's so much more here. I have not come to abolish them, he says. I've come to fulfill them. In other words, he brings meaning and content to his mission of entering into this world to die for our sins. And that's now why we find, for example, in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul writing, but when the time had fully come, God sent his Son. Did you get that sense of purposefulness again? Mission statement again. Now he'll say, born of a woman, born under law, but only after having used the word sent. Why under the law? So that he could keep the law, which we couldn't keep, and then die in our place so that we could have life. Purposefulness. Priscilla Presley was being interviewed about her late husband, Elvis Presley. Powerful conversation. It was recorded in USA Today. Think now, Matthew 5.17, and some of the words that have stood out thus far. Listen in to what she says. Elvis never came to terms with who he was meant to be or what his purpose was in life. He thought he was here for a reason. Maybe to serve. Maybe to save. That agonizing desire was always with him, 
listen to this. And he knew he couldn't fulfill it. So he'd go on stage and he wouldn't have to think about it. Now, when I came across that conversation, three words leaped out at me. Purpose, save, fulfill. Sound familiar? But because he knew he couldn't do it within himself, he had to get out on the stage and get away from the reality of his life. Now here's the thing. If you nor I are prone to want to bring meaning, reason, purposefulness into this Christmas season, we're left with people then attempting to escape reality create their own stage, and then sort of act out their own meaningless sense of purposefulness. And then wondering what that was all about. And when the applause ends, and the people are gone, and all is forgotten, they're left with themselves in the sense of emptiness. When they need is Christ in His fullness. Now, is it any wonder, then, that people gravitate on this 10th anniversary to Pastor Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life? My argument is, is that the wonderful pastor now has to write a sequel, The Purpose Driven Christ. You see? Because once you understand the purpose of Christ, you understand the purpose of life. Because Christ is the means of life. We have to understand why He did not come. We have to understand why He did come. We fit it all together. And now we're able to address the Elvises of this world and say, you don't have to pretend. Here's what's real. He fulfilled. He saves. He purposed. And it was for you. Now, once we bring that into the Christmas season, now we've got a handle on what verse 17 is all about in relationship to the story of wise men and the story of shepherds. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Come. Not born. Or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, come, not born, but to fulfill them. Now you're ready to move on. Now, once you and I have established the reason Christ came, verse 17, we're ready for the second essential, the authority Scriptures possess in verses 18 and 19. Notice now that Jesus begins verse 18 with this phrase, I tell you the truth. Now some of us have used translations that speak of the idea of verily I say unto you. The older translations. The word verily is tied to the word verify. Here Jesus in this translation says I tell you the truth. The great 
New Testament scholar Bruce Metzger says, no scribe in that day and era would ever have dared make this statement. I tell you the truth. Now notice what Jesus Christ goes on to say. Unless heaven and earth disappear, you can almost sense the dramatic pause at this point. And so his disciples look upward at heaven. Still here. They look at the earth. Still here. With that dramatic pause, now you go on and read this. Not the smallest letter. Not the least stroke of a pen. Will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished that final day. Now break it down a little more. Here Jesus is speaking of the authority of the Scripture. Jesus is speaking of the integrity of the Scripture. In John 5, verse 39, he would say, these are the Scriptures that testify about me. In John 10, verse 35, Christ would say, Scripture cannot be broken. And now he grabs hold of two small elements of the Hebrew language. One by one. Not the least, not the smallest letter. The jot was the smallest letter. The tittle. That was a tiny extension that came flowing out of a particular word. So small you could overlook it in what's written. And what Jesus is saying here, take the most minute aspects of your Old Testament and understand everything points towards Jesus. The law in the Old Testament comes from a word which means to point, to give direction to. Now the law, the Torah, points, gives us direction toward Jesus Christ. Jesus, then, is saying this is how significant it is. You've got to be able to distinguish between the traditions and the truths. Now look very carefully at how all this begins to unfold, for example, in Matthew chapter 5. In verse 21, he addresses one of the commandments regarding murder. Does he abolish the commandment? No. Notice he says not You have read what it's been stated. Nope. He says, you have heard that it was said regarding adultery in verse 27. Doesn't say, you have read what's there. Nope. He says, you have heard that it was said regarding divorce. It has been said, verse 33, Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. What is he doing in each case? He is taking them beyond the scribes to the Scriptures. He's taking them away from the traditions to the truth. In other words, he's cutting down the trees that are obscuring the view and forcing you to examine what is truly there. Even the minutest detail points you in the direction of Jesus. Are you looking his way? 
caught my attention. Explosion in Kansas City. It resulted in a badly disfigured face and the loss of eyesight of a particular man. He lost both of his hands as well in the explosion. But you know one of his greatest disappointments? It was his realization that he could no longer read the Bible as he'd done for years. Now he heard about a woman in England who had learned to read the Bible in Braille with her lips. With her lips. But to his frustration, the nerve endings on his lips were so severely damaged that he couldn't utilize them to read. But one day, accidentally, he brushed the raised braille characters with his tongue. and discovered that he could learn to read Braille with his tongue. He has now read the Bible through four times with his tongue. Do you grasp the significance of what's here? Everything points towards Christ. Everything gives meaning with regard to Christ. Paul would write in Romans 10 verse 4, Christ is the end of the law. In other words, when you're watching the Packers beat the Vikings this afternoon, sorry James Gilliland. Think end. Think goal. Romans 10, verse 4. Christ is the end. Christ is the goal of the law. So that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Didn't abolish. Fulfilled. So now you look at this and you see, I'm beginning to get a sense of the relevance. There's the authority of the Scripture, and here's the astounding thing. In order to reveal his sinlessness, the one who has ultimate authority, Jesus Christ, placed himself under the authority of the 39 books of the Old Testament, And so starting with Bethlehem, his character was revealed to people day by day, week by week, year by year, till you reach the point where he dies on that cross to save us from our sins and says, Tetelestai, it is finished. Tetelestai, what's finished? The ceremonial law. While he continues to provide us an understanding of the value of the enduring moral law, it was not abolished, fulfilled. And that's why we go back to that study we did on God, government, and politics over those four Sunday nights. And we pondered Roy Moore, who had the Ten Commandments situated within his, within his courthouse in Alabama, only to be told by a higher court to have them removed. But at the same time, on the Supreme Court in the Washington, D.C., there etched in stone is a scene of Moses with the Ten Commandments. And there we have now the tension of our culture today 
which drives us right back to this passage of Scripture. He didn't abolish it. He fulfilled it. Therefore, it's to be etched in stone before our eyes, applicable to life today as moral guidance as to how to live our lives after coming to saving faith in Christ. The smallest letter, the simple dash, projects verse 19 into our hearts. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. You pause there and say, okay, I see what's going on now. Jesus has established a contrast between small and great, least and great. And those who are least are those who teach and live out as if the moral law is no longer applicable. But those who are called great are those who teach and live out that the law is applicable. And so they are able then to draw this out as to how Jesus Christ teaches this, what Jesus Christ fulfilled, the ceremonial law, while at the same time teaching us the value of the moral law. We're then smiling, aren't we? When we think of that scene that got worked itself out Imagine the realtor. Voltaire had said, in 100 years, the Bible will be a forgotten book. But now one of Voltaire's homes is the headquarters of the French Bible Society. What were the pallbearers thinking? You see where we're at? You see what we're saying? And so now what Jesus Christ is telling you and what Jesus Christ is telling me, look very carefully at the heavens and the earth. Still there. Look very carefully at the Scriptures, the jot and the tittle. Still there. Therefore, there is direct bearing upon life today. Now you've got the reason why Christ came. You've got, furthermore, the Scriptures and their authority. Now you're ready for this third essential, the righteousness that God desires, found in verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now let me ask you a question. Who is Jesus teaching at this point? There are no Pharisees in his midst. There are no teachers of the law in his midst. Otherwise, he would have put it a different way. Only his disciples. So his disciples are looking around at the religious scene, and they're saying to themselves, everybody respects the righteousness of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Look what Jesus is telling us here. Unless your righteousness surpasses them, I can't surpass them. I'm a sinner. Look at how religious those folks are. I can't pull it off. And then Paul 
speaks up. And he has something to say to you, and he has something to say to me. We're in Titus chapter 3, and in verse 4 and 5, we're told, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, not born, appeared, he saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Notice then the standard of righteousness that God demands. And he challenges us to realize we're sinners. We're in desperate need of a Savior. And how the Scriptures point towards the one who died to save us from our sins. So we nod our head when we hear the story of a time on a battlefield. The flag got far ahead of the soldiers, and an officer called back to his superior, should we bring the flag back to the regiment? No, came the reply. Make the regiment catch up to the flag. Now, God has not diminished the standard. God has maintained the standard. Jesus didn't abolish the standard. Jesus fulfilled the standard. Now you've got the reason Christ came, which is tied to the authority that Christ possesses, that Christ placed himself under to reveal his sinless nature, therefore the perfect sacrifice for our sins. The righteousness God requires, Jesus fulfills and then declares us righteous when we put our faith and trust in him. That means then you don't have to keep shoveling dirt. First John McCain put it, in war, captors often try to mess with the minds of the captors. The method is to give them a shovel, point to a huge pile of dirt, and tell them to move it to another point. And once that is done, they tell them to move it back. The idea is to remove their sense of purpose. But we're going to do the Christmas season is this. We're going to bring purpose back. We're going to explain this well. We want it to make a difference in the lives of people. For God's glory. Let's stand together. So, Father, Jesus gave us four rich, thought-stretching verses that encompass the idea of why he came, Jesus did. So what we need to do, Father, is to help people to understand the connection, the bridge, the relationship between Christmas and Good Friday. The purpose of Christ's birth was Christ's death. And so our purpose in life, Father, is to embrace the purpose that you have given your Son, the purpose-driven Christ, and put our faith and trust exclusively in Him and in Him alone. So, 
in this world where people are just continuously moving dirt around. Help us now to give them a sense of purpose and direction and lead them to the cross, even via the manger, for your glory and honor. And for this now we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.